The book of Job, 42 chapters, but it's going to go by very quickly. Chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. And one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east and his sons would go and feast in their houses each on his appointed day and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course That Job would send and sanctify them and would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. We begin our study in the book of Job and In this introduction, we're going to briefly give some general background of the book. In this introduction, we're going to again look very briefly at Job's faith in verse 1. Job's family in verse 2 and then again in verses 4 and 5. And Job's fortune in verse 3. The book of Job, I'm going to suggest to you, is old. Very old. Some of you might have a study Bible. Some of you might be using an electronic format. Some of you may have a section where it says author, unknown, theme, the problem of suffering, the date of the writing, uncertain. And that is true. Different scholars have given different dates for the book. But I myself believe that the book is possibly the oldest book in the Bible. And I believe that it dates all the way back to the time of Abraham. I believe that it occupies that period of time that's called the patriarchal period. And it's called the patriarchal period because it's the time of the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now the writer is unknown, but some suggest that Job himself may have written it. Others, Elihu, who is featured prominently in the book, others Moses or Solomon, and some of the more persuasive arguments for an older book, at least in my own mind, is that there is no mention in this book about the law of Moses. There is a mention of sacrifice, but not of sacrificial services as we understand it in the Levitical way of thinking. Also, the book makes mention of the pyramids in chapter 3, verse 14, and even then calls them ruins, the ruins of the Egyptians, the cities on the plains in chapter 15, verse 28. The flood is mentioned in chapter 22, verse 16. And like I said, there's no mention of the law. There's no Sabbath keeping in this book. There's no mention of the exodus. There's no mention of the crossing of the Red Sea. There's no mention of Canaan. There's no mention of any of the kings of Israel. And many people even wonder, well, why should I even study the book of Job? Many people look at the prologue in chapter 1 and 2. They look at the epilogue in chapter 42, verses 7 through 17. But they rarely look at the entire book. But I'm going to suggest to you it's like Shakespeare or any great literature that you might know things about a particular book or famous statements or quotes from great literature of the past. But it's going to benefit us to study this book. As a matter of fact, Thomas Carlyle, the poet, wrote, call this book one of the grandest things ever written. There is nothing written, I think, of equal literary merit. 
Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote, quote, the greatest poem, whether of ancient or modern literature, unquote. The book speaks of terrible trials in chapters 1 and 2. A whimpering wife in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It speaks of fickle friends in chapter 4 through 37. And the book has unbelievable challenges when it comes to interpretation. And the reason being because the book is history, but also the book is poetry. Some of you look at your book and you'll note that it begins what's called the poetical and wisdom books. It begins with Job, continues with Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon and Lamentations. There's a reason why it's put in this particular place. As a matter of fact, I have a note in my Bible. Job is the first of the wisdom books in the Old Testament canon. It goes on and says, wisdom literature, of which the epistle of James is the New Testament example, who, by the way, mentions Job, deals with the broad realm of human experience and is set forth in short, pithy sayings, proverbs, essays, monologues, and in Job, drama. And I'm going to suggest to you that the book of Job isn't simply taught. In a very real sense, the book of Job has to be acted out. Because it is a drama. And I'm going to find this fun. Because it's going to give me an opportunity to do some things that I normally don't get to do when I'm teaching a Bible study. Now, like I said, the book is history. And I believe it's real history in the sense that Job is a real person. He's mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. He's mentioned in the book of James. It's also poetry. But unlike English poetry, the focus is on rhythm more than on rhyme. Rhythm of sound on stressed and unstressed syllables. Rhythm of thought, sometimes expressed in what scholars call Hebrew parallelism. Hebrew parallelism is very different from our poetry. Those of you who grew up in a world and you were forced to memorize poetry, you remember that poetry is supposed to rhyme. But in Hebrew parallelism, there's poetic parallelism. And it takes many forms. Synonymous words, matched words, matched pairs, opposite words, sequential words and phrases. Hebrew poetry, one writer said, is the language of the heart. It's rich in metaphor. It's vibrant in word pictures. And Hebrew people are no different from any other people in the sense that they love stories. Stories that make it come alive. Chuck Swindoll in his introduction to Job in his interactive study guide writes, quote, You might call it a story that illustrates the unfairness of life. Or a treatise on the depths of human suffering. Maybe you'd describe it as a portrait of a man who served God yet lost everything. And you'd be right. All of these themes surface in the book of Job. However, Job offers us much more than the heart-wrenching story of one man's suffering. It provides us with a vast treasure trove of God's truth that we can apply to our lives when our circumstances reach the limits of our own endurance. And make no mistake about it, it will happen to you. Your circumstances will one day reach the limits of your endurance. It may come in the form of an abandonment by a spouse. It may come in the form of a diagnosis which you never ever expected. And you're wondering how you're going to go forward. Job will cause us to examine the mystery of suffering. But it's going to ask way more questions than give answers. 
The book will attempt to answer some of life's most persistent and perplexing questions. Questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? Chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. Why does God allow people to suffer? Not just evil people, not just wicked people, not just people who make bad choices and embrace selfish living. People that you would expect. I mean, if you are a drug dealer and a drug user, and you would think, yeah, if you drink yourself to death or you drug yourself to death, does it shock us or surprise us that wicked people making wicked choices to wickedly live their life, that they're going to suffer the consequences? That makes sense to us. But what about the person who doesn't embrace bad choices and selfish living? What about the person who self-describes himself or herself as a lover of Jesus and a lover of God? What about the person who purposes in their heart to obey him with all of their heart and with all of their might? What about when bad things happen to them? How should we even think about suffering? How should we even respond to suffering? How can a true believer stand strong, stay steady, keep course under enormous loss and agonizing affliction, and then remain victorious in their heart, in their mind, in their attitude? How are we to think about it? What must the afflicted believer do to be strong in their witness to others? And for the person who's listening and you are a pastor and you are a leader, you're, you're watching on television or you're watching via the internet and, and you ask this question, I'm asking you, do you have a theology of suffering? Do you come from a tradition and a background where you're used to naming it and claiming it? You're used to living in prosperity. You say that you're the head, not the tail. Let me warn you, if you do not have a theology of suffering, guess what? Eventually hurting people won't be welcome in your church and they won't be welcome in in your life because the hurt and the pain and the suffering will cause you to resent them and distance yourself from them. Some people don't want to have a theology of suffering. But the pastor, the church, the leader, who does not have a theology of suffering will eventually drive the suffering person away. In his popular book, uh, A Survey of the Old Testament, Norm Geisler includes a list of some 20 doctrinal or spiritual purposes for suffering that he's found. Just in the book of Job. I'm going to list them quickly and hopefully these will also be posted online at our website. Number one, to expose Satan as the evil adversary of the human race. That's chapter 1 verse 6 through chapter 2 verse 10. To prove the believer's faith. Chapter 1 verse 6 through chapter 2 verse 10. Number three, to arouse people to evaluate their lives. Chapter 36 verse 9. Number four, to make people aware of their sin. That's chapter 36 verse 9. Number five, to correct people's behavior. Chapter 36, verse 10. Number 6, to stir people to repent. Chapter 33, verse 14. Chapter 36, verse 10. Chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Number 6, or number 7, to prepare people for God's wonderful promises. Chapter 36, verse 11. To warn people if they disobey, they'll perish. Chapter 36, verse 11. Number nine, to instill within believers a stronger desire to help and to minister to people. Chapter 29, verse 12. Number 10, to stir people to acknowledge God as the creator of the universe and all that is therein. Chapter 38, verse 1. Chapter 39, verse 30. Number 11, to silence and humble people who are prideful. Those who question God's fairness and justice in the world. Chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Number 12, to stir people to repent. I know I have already said that, but this is in particular. This is specific. 
To those who question God's power to save and execute perfect justice in the world. That's chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Number 13, to show just how weak people really are. Demonstrating how much they really need God and need to trust God and his power to save them and deliver them in chapter 40, verse 6. Number 14, to warn people that they must not stand against God. Chapter 40, verses 1 through 34. And pause for just a moment on number 14. To warn people that they must not stand against God. That's not politically correct in our culture, in our society. That's not even civil in certain circles. When you warn people, don't. Go against God. It's not a good idea. It's not a good idea to rebel against him. It's not a a good idea to oppose him. It's not a good idea to defy them. But people don't want to hear that. And number 15. To stir suffering believers. To become intercessors. True prayer warriors in chapter 42 verse 8. Number 16. To prepare people in particular believers. To receive God's richest mercy and blessings in chapter 42 verses 10 through 17. I know what some of you are saying. I can't wait to chapter 42. Let's pause for just a moment. I don't blame you. Read ahead. Read frequently. Read often. Come back. Go over and over it. Number 17, to teach people to control and not misuse their tongues. Thank God none of you have to deal with that problem in chapter 42, verse 3. Number 18, to teach people that God's plans are perfect and his power unlimited. Chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. Number 19, to stir people to confess their unworthiness in comparison to God's glory and unlimited power. Chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. And number 20, to refine and purify people to make them clean and valuable like precious gold in chapter 23, verse 10. And that's just scratching the surface. You probably read in the New Testament where Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus and he told the, the, the people on the road to Emmaus about searching the scriptures. For in them they will have life, but they are those which testify of me. Is Jesus in the book of Job? What if I suggested to you That he is in fact in the book of Job. The book of Job speaks of a coming mediator. Job will ask in chapter 9 verse 33 through 35. Chapter 33 verses 23 and 25. He'll cry out to God and he'll say would to God that there was a mediator. A go between. Between you and me. And there is a mediator. The New Testament says there's only one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus. This becomes an important point for the person who is committed to trying to trip you up. On my radio program today, a lady had called and she basically said, well, what about the people who never hear about Jesus? What about the people who never have an opportunity to hear the message of salvation? And I said... Paul's argument in the book of Romans is go tell them. Go tell them about Jesus. Don't look for excuses to find a way to get to heaven apart from Jesus. Because what Paul argues is that apart from Jesus, you run the risk of not having a right relationship with God. What is part of the point? Part of the point I want to point out is what about Adam? What about Noah? What about Abraham? What about Job? How do you suppose they got saved? 
Did they hear the gospel? Did they hear about a man who was going to be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, die on a cross and rise from the dead? The answer is Job doesn't have that message. But in Job 19, he is convinced in verses 23 through 27 that he is going to place his hope in a redeemer. And he's totally convinced that this redeemer is alive. You've sang the song. I know that my Redeemer lives. How does Job, during the time of Abraham, envision a God who sends a Redeemer, who is alive? Again, Norm Geisler writes, Job knows that he needs someone who can explain the mystery of suffering by suffering. The just for the unjust, as it's spoken of in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And thus bring victory over the plague of evil and pain as it is intimated in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Is Jesus in the book of Job? The answer is yes. And what are some of the special features of the book of Job? Well, again, we discover that Satan is an evil adversary of the human race. He's seen as the one who's behind human suffering and evil circumstances in chapter 1, verse 6, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. We discover how limited and shallow our understanding is about creation, about the universe, how vast its dimensions. When Job writes about it in chapter 38, verse 4, and chapter 39, verse 30, there was no Hubble spacecraft that could talk about the edges of the universe that's allegedly 14 billion light years across. But the book of Job intimates... That the world in which you live is way bigger than even you can imagine. That we know even less about God, the creator, his unlimited knowledge and power and presence. We may think we know a lot about the world in which we live, but we don't. We may think that we know a lot about the God of the Bible, but we don't really We discover in the book of Job that God really wants to have a personal relationship with his people. Job will experience that God seems distant and unconcerned about his suffering. But when his heart is fully prepared for the presence of God, God will reveal himself. And some of you will experience the exact same thing. You may not be prepared. Right at this very moment. For the answers. That God is getting ready to prepare for your hearts. But one day. He will show up. I'm going to give you a hint right from the very start. Even as we begin our study. The question of suffering is never answered. The peculiar and specific circumstances of Job are never given a satisfactory answer. The answer becomes God himself showing up. And the moment that God shows up, it will become a sufficient answer for Job. You see, the book of Job tells us about a God who demonstrates his care for Job, his concern for Job, his love for Job, and every other individual in chapter 42, verses 1 through 17. Job is a book that demonstrates that God really does have a plan for our lives, chapter 42, verses 1 through 17. Job is a book that demonstrates that we can go to God, that we can have In the Lord, that no matter how painful our suffering is, no matter how difficult our circumstances are, in humility and submission, we can just simply present ourselves to the Lord who loves us. Job is a book that shows... How well-meaning people 
People who really say they care about you. People who say that they love you. People who say that they're concerned about you. Job is a book that shows how well-meaning people can be wrong in their beliefs, in their opinions, in their thoughts. When their beliefs, their opinions, and their thoughts are not based on the word of God or the revelation of God. Job is a book that demonstrates how a person can be theologically correct and at the same time offend others. Trying to force them to accept their beliefs. That's the friend's arguments, by the way, in chapter 42, verse 8. Job is a book that shows how difficult it is to be victorious. When catastrophic circumstances come, tragedies, heartaches, afflictions. Job is the book that shows how the most righteous are sometimes destined to suffer. And might even suffer the most. It reminds me of a statement that I've heard almost all of my life. Measure your life not by the wine you drink, but rather the wine that's poured forth. Because love's strength stands in love's sacrifice. And he who suffers most has most to give. Now we get to the text. Job 1. Verse 1. The life and character of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. We don't know the precise location of Uz. The area is mentioned in the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 20, Lamentations chapter 4, verse 21. Uz is also the name of a man who was from the land of Edom. He was called an Edomite. Scholars have offered as suggestions somewhere near Bashan, which would have been just south of Damascus. Some near Edom, southeast of the Dead Sea. Most picture northern Arabia, east of Edom. If you can think of Saudi Arabia in your mind, or if you have a map in your Bible, think of the northern part of Saudi Arabia. And in the northern part of Saudi Arabia, there was a gigantic valley called the Wadi Sirum, which is about 200 miles long. And it could have sustained Job's livestock. It was close enough to Edom to be within the raiding distance of the Chaldeans, which we'll learn about later in chapter 1, verse 17. Uz, Genesis 22, verse 1, is also the name of the firstborn of Abraham's brother, Nahor, and affiliated again with that region of Upper Mesopotamia. Job is called blameless and upright. And it says whose name was Eob. Semitic, Ayabu, which is related to the Hebrew. Most linguists and scholars think that Job's name is related to an idiomatic phrase in the, in, the, in, the far, in the Middle East. Where is father? Eob. Where's your dad? Where's your father? I don't know if you grew up in a home where your mom would say, wait till your father gets home. Where is your father? Well, he is present. Now, we have to draw special attention to these descriptions and their meanings. Blameless. Blameless doesn't mean sinless. Job, again, like I said, I'm going to suggest to you he's a real person. The Hebrew word translated blameless is ta'am. It refers to an outward 
or willful sin, not sinless perfection. In other words, blameless means there isn't anything that you could find outwardly looking at him that would cause concern or bring you to a place of accusation. It's the same word that describes Daniel in the book of Daniel. Remember where evil people are trying to accuse Daniel of impropriety. And as they look at his life from top to bottom, from left to right, they can find nothing with which to accuse him. It suggests that Job was innocent of willful or conscious sin. He was in fact a man of integrity. He walked with the Lord. Later in Job chapter 31, we learn that Job is moral and honest and just. And as unbelievable as this might sound, he's loyal to his wife. He's loyal to his family. He's generous with the poor. He's faithful to the Lord. And Job worships the true and the living God. Later, we're going to discover that he abhors and shuns idolatry. Job seeks to honor and please the Lord. Now, again, neither God nor Job claim sinless perfection. Only that he was blameless. Again, in this context, it means innocent of known sin. And the word upright translates the Hebrew word yatsar. It's the same word that's found in Proverbs chapter 13. And if you just flip over, it's kind of hard to get all the way past the book of Psalms. But if you get to Proverbs chapter 13, I'm just going to turn there real quick because it's really worth reading. In verse 6 it says, righteousness guards him whose way is blameless. But wickedness overthrows the sinner. There, the word upright is also translated blameless. But here it means morally straight as opposed to crooked. So again, when you're thinking about something upright, when you stand something upright, it stands tall, so to speak. When I think of moral, straight living according to belief and conviction, and this will become an important principle that I'm hoping that you will embrace and you'll always remember, faith in the Bible is never separated from living. Faith is never about acquiring more information about God. It isn't just going through the laundry list of theology of saying, well, now I know more about salvation, and now I know more about redemption, and now I know more about creation and evolution, the past and the present and the future. Never, ever, ever in the Bible is faith divorced from the very real way in which you live. And so Job feared God. Look what it says. And shunned evil. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 111 verse 10. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord, as most of you realize, means reverence. It means awe. It means a profound respect. In other words, the fear of the Lord means I'm scared to death that God's going to show up and hurt me. That's not what it means. It means the profound respect that comes when you consider and you begin to think about and meditate on God's perfections, on his moral perfection, on his strength and on his majesty, on his goodness and his love. Again, when the Bible says, just and true are your ways, O Lord. So this fear causes Job... Not just to meditate on the majesty of the attributes of God, but based on that, he decides that evil is going to not be a part of his life. He's going to shun evil. He's going to avoid evil. And that's how he manages to live a blameless and an upright life. I guess one of the ways that I want you to think about this is, Job has fulfilled wisdom's expectation of proper behavior. 
Job has fulfilled wisdom's expectations of proper behavior. Have you ever had someone say to you, I've expected other people to act like that, but not you. I never expected that from you. Because you were raised with a certain expectation. You know about right and wrong. You know about good and evil. Some of you may have been raised in similar circumstances to me. Where there were no boundaries. Where there were no borders. That you acted out what it was that you thought that you could get away with. And so you were crippled right from the start. You were damaged right from the start. Blameless. Upright. Moral. Wouldn't be the words that people would, be, would use to describe you. But it's true of Job. Let's look at his sons and his daughters just for a moment in verse 2. And seven sons, three daughters were born to him. This is going to be remarkable as we have conversations with his wife later on down the road. But he does have ten children. Now again, what can we learn from this information? Let me just draw some things out of the passage for you. I suspect for years Job's life was filled with joy and happiness and prosperity and peace. Ladies, for those of you who have had one child or two children or three children, some of you might have had five children, but imagine having ten children. And as you have ten children, there is joy in your house. There is happiness in your house. There's prosperity in your house. There's peace in your house. One baby comes and another baby comes and another baby comes. Now think about this life. Think about this prosperity. Think about this joy. Because without warning, Job's life is going to be struck with tragedy. One of the things that I want you to give out or get from this, even this one little tiny space is that there is a significant amount of time that has taken place where he has enjoyed what, what you and I might call Ozzy and Harriet reality. Those of you who aren't old like me aren't going to understand Ozzy and Harriet or leave it to Beaver. But you're, going to, you're thinking of those idyllic situations where you have a mom and a dad and a perfect home. And the big tragedy is because you get caught chewing gum at school or putting it in your sister's hair or something like that. Some scholars see in the number 10 deep meaning. But I'm going to suggest to you that it probably more likely means that Job has a huge family. And a huge family in the Middle East was a sign of health and prosperity. It wasn't an opportunity to have your own reality TV show necessarily. As a matter of fact, again, I want to encourage you to read the entire book because when Job's fortunes are restored when you come to the closing chapter in chapter 42 those of you who are familiar with the book you know that these kids that we're reading about right at this very moment are about to die but Job is going to have 10 more kids is it going to replace the kids that he's lost now seven sons 7,000 sheep three daughters 3,000 camels is this just a coincidence Let's talk about the wealth of Job just for a moment in verse 3. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. Remember, it's a yoke. That's two. So you double the, you take the 500 times it times two. What do you come up with, mathematicians? 1,000 oxen. 500 female donkeys. They don't even list the guys. And a very large household. So that this man is the greatest in all of the Middle East. Now again, Job's wealth is legend. He has a huge ranch. It's bigger than Bonanza. It's huge. He has huge livestock. He has reserves that would support children and servants. I was listening to myself on the radio because I was driving, and I don't normally listen to myself on the radio, but I heard myself give an illustration of a guy who was in Texas, and there was a ranch that he went to, and he was visiting. This, this is a very famous Baptist minister, and this man invited the Baptist minister over, and he said, 
look as far as you can to the north. There were oil wells and, and everything that you could see. You, as far as you could see. And then you could see a forest in the back. You could see plains and just oceans of grain. He, he had a platform and you could look to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. And he said, as far as you can see, that's my, my property. And I started off with nothing. And he was hoping that the pastor would you know, go, wow, you just... You came from nothing and you have all of this. But instead the pastor said, look up. How much property do you have in that direction? (laughs) Yeah, I, I laughed again at my own little illustration. But what's interesting again. As far as you could see to the left or the right. To the, to the north or the south. He had a huge, huge operation. Now, by the way. He has a huge ranch, huge livestock, huge amount of servants. And in the ancient world, sheep provided food and they provided clothing and money. Camels were the ancient equivalent to long-haul truckers or transport. As he's doing business, exchanging goods and services. These camels just aren't camels for fun. But he can send the camels to the north, to Damascus. He can send the camels south to Egypt, east and west. In other words, he is Walmart. He is Sam's Club. He is Costco. He is putting all of these things together and they're available for transport. They could transport Crops, merchandise, clothing. But camels were also priced for milk and meat. Yuck. By the way, if you ever go to a Syrian restaurant and get camel burritos, I don't recommend it. Job had a thousand oxen. Now again, that's 500 pairs of yoked oxen, which means that Job could have provided agricultural support for vast tracts of land. He's not just this simple farmer doing simple farming. He is Monsanto. He is the guy who's providing farming for all of the land. And this farming is on a huge scale. Oxen were prized as a source of food. And apparently the sheep and the oxen are also going to be a source for sacrificial offering. Job has 500 female donkeys. They're prized for their milk, which is a rare delicacy in the days of Job. Donkeys, like camels, could also be used for transportation. And so it's a big business. Job may have employed hundreds of people, including all of their families. And Job is represented as the greatest of all the people of the the East. And I'm going to suggest to you that it isn't just simply because he has all of this wealth and all of this influence that he is the greatest of all of the people of, of the East, not simply because of wealth, but wealth coupled with wisdom and piety. In other words... His life and his circumstances aren't just simply gauged by his possessions. And Job will later acknowledge that all of his possessions are the result of God's favor. Because as we go into the text, you're going to realize, you know, he says, Naked I came into this world, naked I'll leave. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed is the name of the Lord. So here's a picture of a man who is blameless, perfect, righteous, fears the Lord, shares with the poor, cares for strangers. He's an honest and just judge. He is an honest and fair employer. He is highly esteemed and sought out for wisdom and counsel. And look at verse 4. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, seven sons, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And they would send and invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. I I actually want you to read into that text. These are children who minister to one another, encourage one another, share with one another, enjoy one another, love one another. That might be different from your family. Where you haven't talked with your mother or your father or your brother or your sister. That your life was noted by pain and sorrow and division and constant bickering and fighting. But his sons would go and feast in their houses. Each on his appointed day. 
We're given some surprising information. Job's children are, are close and caring. They take care of each other. They host family gatherings. And the sons are careful and concerned about their sisters. And it says in verse 5, So it was when in the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Seven kids. Seven sons. Three daughters. For Job said, and, and note, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God. Note, in their hearts. I've always found this interesting. He doesn't say, it may be that my sons have sinned. Well, it's easy to tell because I'm watching them and they are sinning. It's pretty obvious to anyone who's paying attention. I'm going to suggest to you that from the text, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. The reason why is because their outward lives seem to manifest the kind of decency and order that was appropriate in a home that you're growing up in a God-fearing home. And by the way, each and every one of your homes will be a Christ-centered home. Or it will be a child-centered home. And you're going to have to decide early on what kind of a home it's going to be. Is it going to be the home where mother and father say, you know what? We want to live our lives in such a way that we honor and we please Jesus. And we want our lives to reflect that. And I'm going to suggest to you that Job and Mrs. Job, that their lives reflected that kind of a home. Theirs was a God-honoring home. Job is a loving and devoted father. You see, the very fact that he gets up early, 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 and he loves them and he sacrifices for them. I want you to see the picture. He is consistently seeking the Lord for what? For his children. He is seeking the Lord for their cleansing and for their purification. Is that what you do? Did you pray for your son's wives, for your daughter's husbands? Do you pray for them even now? I think of my son in Kuwait. I think of my middle son getting ready to be married. I think of my youngest son planting a church with his daughters. And I get up and I pray for my children. And I ask God to love them and spare them and use them for his good and glory. And that's exactly what Job is doing. He's a loving and a devoting scholar. And some, some scholars see in Job's sacrifice for his children, again, an early dating for the book and a placement in the patriarchal system. Because guess what? There's no mosaic kind of of sacrifice that's taking place. Job serves as the priest in his family. And God would use this picture of sacrifice, I think, to point to the greater sacrifice of the Messiah. And again, for those of you who come to church here on Sunday morning, we've been going through the book of of Romans. And remember, I've always told you, salvation is always by blood, Hebrews 9.22. And almost all things are by the law, purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. The blood must be innocent. The blood must be shed. The blood must be applied. Salvation is always through a person. Salvation is always through grace. Salvation is always associated with bloodletting. Now again, this becomes an important point. Because when you start to ask and answer the question, what kind of a person is Job? And what kind of a family does he have? And why is all of this calamity that's about to happen, how are we to think about it? But Job is a picture of a man who really loves the Lord. And who really loves his family. I don't know who wrote this poem. But the writer sums up chapters 1 and 2. And I'm going to have some fun with this as we continue in our study. He sums up the first opening chapters of Job this way. 
blameless, upright, and full of wealth. Job has family, flock, and health, a deity's boast, a challenger's dare. Job's virtue will crumble, just lay him bare. Challenge accepted, calamity rife, nothing left but ailing life. Three friends arrive in mournful silence, days, nights, no words, an alliance. You see, in the next few chapters, it's going to be way more than a Bible study. It's going to be an invitation for you to ask hard questions and be prepared for even harder answers as we begin to explore problem of suffering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look forward to what we might learn. Lord, we know that we tend to think of circumstances in our own world, of what's happening in our world. And I think we're going to be shocked and surprised. How people in every generation are people with the same loves and hates, with the same insights and prejudices, with the same limitations. Lord, I pray that we would begin to think about what this amazing poem and story and drama has to offer us. Lord, for those of us who are honest, we have to come to the conclusion that whatever problems I face or whatever temptations or suffering I've experienced, that blameless and upright and fearing God and shunning evil probably aren't words that have described most of our life. Or even a small portion of our life. But Lord we pray that in Jesus. We would want to walk as men and women. Who love Jesus. Who stand. Forgiven. Encouraged. Empowered. To live the kind of life where. People watching would not see anything in us other than men and women who love you. And so again, Father, we pray that we would begin to examine our hearts, our families, our circumstances, and prepare for the journey in this amazing book. In Jesus' name, amen.